listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. For over a year, Paul Peters Derry has been sitting incognito in the congregation. He is a minister of the United Church of Canada, has occasionally led the prayers of the people and administered communion. When I was getting ready to go away on my sabbatical, he uh, he said, if you need, I could preach on one of the Sundays, but it was already well covered by Kaylin and Rachel and Helen and Larry. So I said, well, maybe you could preach on a Sunday in Lent. And so he is. Thank you, Jamie, and uh, thank you, uh, St. Benedict's Table. I uh, have become a part of this community, and you have meant uh, and continue to mean much, so much to me and what I am about as seeker who struggles, as a disciple who seeks to follow Jesus. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. How the hell did this happen? It's a new book by uh, political satirist uh, P.J. O'Rourke, who is uh, actually a die-hard Republican who, stranger than fiction, came to endorse Hillary Clinton for president last year, announcing that America is experiencing the most severe outbreak of mass psychosis since the Salem witch trials of 1692. How the hell did this happen? And so O'Rourke dives into the pig pile of presidential candidates uh, circa June 2015, and then uh, one by one, he eviscerates each front runner as he or she emerges from under the rock where they've been living, covering the dreadful primaries and the candidate debates and leading the way to the beginning of the end of times in November. How the hell did this happen? As well as being a great book title, it's also a good handle for tonight's gospel reading, for getting into how the hell did this happen? Because on the surface, that seems to be the question that everyone is asking. As Jamie explained uh, last uh, Sunday evening, this year's readings, uh, gospel readings, offer a succession of extended, even long-winded gospels. Lent too, we had uh, Nicodemus under cover of darkness coming face to face with Jesus. Lent three, Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Lent four, Jesus tonight, Jesus' healing of the man blind from birth. And Lent five, well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's focus, let the troubles of tonight's gospel be sufficient for the night thereof. And as was the case last week, uh, tonight's story offers a host of characters. The blind man, man of mystery and intrigue. Jesus, also known as the light of the world. You have the disciples, the lesser wits, those who show promise but they don't quite get it, at least not yet. 
And then we have uh, the dimwits, the Pharisees, and there ain't no hope of those guys ever getting it. And then there's the blind man's parents, innocent bystanders, perhaps. Last week when it came to uh, the gospel reading, as I sat in my regular spot there, I experienced a bit of whiplash as the gospel reading started and then all of a sudden there was someone reading from the lectern, then some reading from the center of the aisle. As a jolting back and forth happened, he said, she said, she challenged, he questioned, And the whiplash-inducing repartee continues again this night. Attempting to bring order out of chaos, we might divide John chapter 9 into three sections. First, introduction to the healing. That's verses 1 through 5. Description of the healing, 6 and 7. And then finally, the reaction to the healing, verses 8 through 41. Anticipating Jesus performing a healing miracle, his disciples, the lesser wits, struggling for that proverbial light bulb to somehow appear above their heads, they ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? How the hell did this happen? Our good friends, the Pharisees, they jump on board with menacing determination, all referencing the centuries-old debate. Was it the sins of the parents which produced the suffering of the children, or was it something that the man himself did, prenatal sin committed by the fetus? Now, speaking as someone who works in health care, let alone speaking for any of us struggling with whatever ails us physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually, it is a debate that is far from over. What causes our sicknesses? Torn ligaments or muscles, anxiety, cancer, addiction, old age, middle age, or whatever age, aches and pains. How the hell did this happen is the question that we carry with us either into the doctor's office or the emergency ward or the long-term care facility or the addiction center or the table. How the hell did this happen? Perhaps uh, channeling uh, Lady Gaga, Jesus seems to come down on the side that the man was simply born this way. (laughs) He was ahead of his time. And maybe that's what we're supposed to take as a lesson from tonight's gospel. I'm not so sure. But the story continues. The story continues as Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud with his spit, and cakes the mud on the man's eyes, saying, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man goes, washes as commanded, and he comes back. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind. 
but now I see. Jesus' prescription for this man of mud in his eyes is as bizarrely out of place to us as it may have been for the man born blind. Or maybe he was so desperate for healing. Maybe he had waited so long for healing that he was ready to hitch a ride on anything that would come along. None of us have ever felt that way. Sending the man to wash in the pool of Siloam recalls the incident from 2 Kings chapter 5 where Naaman the leper is sent by Elisha to bathe in the river Jordan. Too simple a healing. Or maybe it might just work. Like water off a duck's back or washing clean a blind man's mud cake eyes. For the community into which John's gospel was proclaimed, this story of the man born blind evokes the healing power of water. This story evokes the healing power of water Because the man is healed after he washes himself. After he does as Jesus commanded. It's an act of trusting obedience. Indeed, in the early church, the story was often read around the baptism of new converts. And the story appears in ancient catacomb art, most frequently as an illustration of Christian baptism. Now, as a once and future Baptist, I don't like to put anything to chance when it comes to Judgment Day. As a once and future Baptist, I love that allusion to baptism because I believe with every fiber of my being that being baptized into the madness of the body of, that is the body of Christ, that that reframes who we are, whose we are, and how we engage this beautiful and yet troublesome world. It even repurposes the empty chair that sits as our Lenten icon. Did you catch what just happened here? It's easy enough to miss. If for no other reason than the question, how the hell did this happen, seems to keep being asked again and again and again throughout the gospel. It continues to grab everyone's attention, except for Jesus and except for the man who had been born blind. Whether with what P.J. O'Rourke describes as the most severe outbreak of mass psychosis since the Salem witch trials, or whether the vote that either did or did not happen on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives on Friday this past week, or the terror that left dead and injured in the parliamentary estate and on the London Bridge, or the shooting in a Cincinnati nightclub 
only hours ago, or whatever other sin that you or I bring to the table on this fourth Sunday in Lent, Jesus invites us to consider not the question, how the hell did this happen, but another question. What for and with the love of God are we going to do about it and move forward? With this story and with every chapter and verse in the Gospels, how the hell did this happen is not a question that Jesus has much time for, and neither should we. So how do we move forward? More than 30 years ago, I remember highlighting a quote from Stanley Hauerwas's book, A Community of Character, and it remains a touchstone quote to which I find myself returning, in which he writes, Adventure requires courage to keep us faithful to the struggle, since by its very nature, adventure means that the future is always in doubt. And just to the extent that the future is in doubt, hope is required, as there can be no adventure if we despair of our goal. Such hope does not necessarily take on the form of excessive confidence. Rather, it involves a simple willingness to take the first step. We move forward, in other words, by taking first steps. We likewise move forward, recognizing at some point the enormity of the changes that we are unleashing by moving forward within us, beyond us, and sometimes even in spite of us. Infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. When I walked in here, on a beautiful summer September evening in 2015. And when I came forward to receive the bread and drink from the cup, and that night took next steps, I could not have imagined the new understandings and even more than that, the new ways in which I would come to live what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Have I got all my questions answered? My soulful restlessness with the journey reconciled? My love-hate relationship with the church, a relic of my former self? Not by a long shot. Not even all healing what I can name, let alone what I give others permission to name for me. All healing is not wrapped up and fixed with a pretty bowl. But still, next steps carry me forward. 
In June of 1990, I arrived in Satil, Quebec. A newly ordained cleric, the first United Church minister, born Baptist, to uh, serve that community's shared Anglican United Church shared ministry. A graduate of Vancouver School of Theology, uh, I had sojourned about in Anglican liturgical waters, and I was good to go. My liturgical preference was the Book of Alternative Services, which had been published only five years before. But in more remote, remote parts of uh, the Anglican Church, such as in the Diocese of Quebec, folk were more accustomed to the Book of Common Prayer. And so responding to the preference of the folk with whom I had been called to break the bread and share the cup, I grew to love deeply the communion liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer, in which the rubrics could not be more clear. When it comes to the communion, the priest taking in both kinds himself and then proceed to deliver the same to the people into their hands, all meekly kneeling. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. And the minister that delivers a cup shall likewise say, The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for thee, and be thankful. There is a rhythmic beauty to those words, a poetic solemnity a simple, grace-filled promise. And what a privilege it is to say those words, to hear those words, to give, to receive, to partake, to participate. And yet, just once, just once, And maybe this is something that is on my clergy bucket list. Just once, I would like to say, as part of the ministration of communion, not the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Just once, I would like to say, from this gospel, here's mud in your eyes. In the name of God, Father, Mother, Son, and Spirit, Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.